This is going to be a, a loopier than one might hope episode of the weeds because in Australia it's what, like one thirty in the morning? Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. We've got Daryl Lind back with us from Australia. Seems kind of jet lagged. I'm super jet lagged, team. This might be, it, it's going to be an episode. Sarah Cliff. Still pregnant. Still with us. Still here. Maybe going to do a couple more episodes. Hopefully not, but maybe you'll see me Friday. Who knows? We'll see what happens. It's going to be, it's going to be thrilling. And, uh, I'm going to change things up a little bit. It's going to be Sweden's National Day on Wednesday, um, which is probably when, when most of you will be listening to this podcast. So we have some great Swedish survey data with which to celebrate. Uh, we, we love the Nordics. We love their studies. Uh, but first, we're going to talk about the most pressing constitutional issue of the day, cake. which is cake. <laughs> cake. What's up, with, what's up with cake? On Monday, the Supreme Court, which brief sidebar has been super slow generally in ruling on its big cases this term. You know, the Supreme Court has a history of of saving its big cases until the, toward the end of its term. But like that is even more true this year. So you're going to be seeing a lot of the big cases come down the pike. Um, but on Monday, they kind of opened the floodgates for that with a case they'd heard arguments for like back several months ago in what it's called the Masterpiece Cake Shop case. Uh, which is the case of a baker in Colorado who refused to bake a cake for a couple who had like approached him for their wedding. And because the baker said he was religiously opposed to same-sex marriage, he refused to bake the cake for them. They claimed that was a violation of, of their rights. Case went to the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, which ruled that, yes, in fact, he had to bake the damn cake. He appealed that through federal courts, ultimately got to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court sided with the baker in a ruling that's called narrow because not because of the vote. The vote was 72 in favor of the baker, but because the way in which the opinion, majority opinion was written was very close to the facts of this specific case. It wasn't like, yes, anyone who says they have a religious objection to same-sex marriage can refuse to perform any function for potential customers. It was in this particular case, the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, during their hearings on the matter, said some things that indicated that they actually didn't respect this man's religious beliefs at all, that they did not think that there was any kind of religious liberty claim that could possibly be valid here. And that was not a proper way to deal with this issue. The proper way to deal with this issue would have been to respect the idea that religious beliefs can, in fact, be at odds with other things that we want and to engage in, in more of a kind of balancing approach. So it's not the outcome that LGBT rights groups wanted. And many of them have kind of started pushing back on the idea that it was a narrow ruling because it certainly doesn't close the door to future challenges along these lines. But it also is not the Supreme Court saying, yes, if you are also a baker or a florist or somebody who, you know, decides that they don't want to serve married same-sex couples at their restaurant, you can now do that. So there were like several layers of abstraction There's here. Several the, layers of cake? The, this, indeed, yes. It's <laughs> like a cake multi, of a ruling? It's more like a, a nested uh, series of pastries, I would say. No, at which this could be addressed, right? So like the, the topic of the litigation— is the conflict between religious freedom and non-discrimination law, right? Which is a fascinating topic with huge stakes for everybody. 
nested within that controversy was a narrower claim that the court could have litigated on. And this is the question of, is cake art, right? <laughs> no, I mean, legitimately, because a, a grounds that the bakers put forward to try to strengthen their case here is that, look, we're not even trying to claim like a generic right to refuse to serve LGBT customers or even a right to refuse to sell things to same-sex marriages, but that we were being commissioned to custom craft a piece, right? And that you would not want a legal framework in which a sculptor or a painter can be made to produce a work of art that they don't want to make, right? That that is a core freedom of expression value that like you can be a sculptor without undertaking a generic obligation to create any kind of sculpture that anybody wants you to do. And so they were saying, look, we don't want to make this wedding cake. We are we are artists. We do not believe in this art. But the Supreme Court didn't rule there either, right? Which would have been one place to park it. They instead went just like straight to the process, right? Which is that like the Colorado law calls for these controversies to be adjudicated by a state civil rights commission. And then they said that the state civil rights commission didn't adjudicate it properly. And they sort of a little bit weird. This is like this like weird dunking on the civil rights commissioners. It really is. Who themselves were like dunking on the idea <laughs> of there being a conscience. You know, it was like the civil rights commissioners were doing a lot of like, well, you know, people could raise all kinds of bad faith religious objections to anything. And I would say I agree with the court that the commissioners did not appear to be taking seriously the fact that like this is a like a real doctrine of mainstream religions that lots of people sincerely believe in, like one way yeah. or the other. Like it, it, it's actually a little bit odd, right? Like it's certainly true that a person could gin up some kind of weird like religious objection and stuff. But like we've all been alive for, you know, a couple of decades here and are completely familiar with like faith traditions that have millions of adherents and and like people are in on it and that they like say that same-sex marriage is wrong. And it was being treated by the civil rights commissioners as a sort of more – like more strange objection than I think it, it really was. Now, why that's so legally relevant, who's to say? I mean, well, I think it is legally relevant because going like way, way, way to, you know, philosophical fundamentals here, it is generally – a good thing that the state says we are not going to insist that all individuals act in the same way at all times. You know, we are going to allow them to have other like organizations, other ideas around which they orient themselves. And sometimes we should accept that the laws we make while they're intended to be universal should have some exemptions, right? Like the reason that we have a federal religious freedom restoration act is because of a 1990 Supreme court ruling written by Antonin Scalia that said that native Americans couldn't use peyote in religious rituals because the law that said no one could use peyote wasn't discriminating against them. Congress proceeded to say, yeah, it kind of is because they're using it for religion, not just to get high. But, you know, I do think there is a legitimate question of when do you consider a religious objection to be legitimate and something by which a person is guiding their life versus 
an opportunistic way to either get personal gain, which I think is something that a lot of people suspect is the case in, you know, some of the employers who are trying to wiggle out of contraceptive coverage for their employees, or whether it's just bigotry, which is something that I think a lot of progressives have accepted is the motivating factor for a lot of people who claim to be religiously motivated right now. I think this is a legitimately hard question, because if you believe that religion is acting as a cover for bigotry and it's not like religion has never done that before, then it makes sense that the strategic response to that would be to try to marginalize it, to try to trivialize it, to like chase bigoted beliefs out of the public sphere rather than saying, yes, we accept the legitimacy of your intellectual superstructure. I'm not comfortable because I think that that flippancy married to the fact that a lot of prominent progressives don't themselves have strong religious beliefs can often turn into an assumption that no one could possibly be sincere that turns into a flippancy toward religion itself. And that, I think, is where the Colorado Civil Rights Commission got a little bit over its skis. Well, I think this brings us to um, to, to RIFRA, one of our— Yes. Um, which comes up. It's the Religious Freedom Restoration Act that— comes up a decent amount lately at the Supreme Court. This is a late 90s law that is kind of meant to protect religious liberty and that has led to the Supreme Court creating a framework for how they deal with these kind of conflicts that Dara's talking about. My understanding is also that um, our own Matt Iglesias wrote a senior thesis that is related to this area. But yeah. we'll that is get inexplicably to, not our white paper this week. Is, <laughs> well, if we can get a PDF of it up online, maybe um, we'll put I, I'll, it. I'll see if I can find it Okay, somewhere. Maybe we'll put it in show links. It, was, it was not that well regarded. Well, I mean, I it's a senior. Anyways, <laughs> so the deal with RIFRA is uh, the Supreme Court has essentially you know, taken RIFRA and made it into this three-pronged test that courts use to decide, like, is this actually an infringement on religious on religious beliefs? So the first is: is there a substantial burden? Is something happening that is burdening someone in who has a sincere belief? And again, these are tricky things to suss out. Like, what is a sincere belief? How do you differentiate between that versus something others might see as bigotry versus something that might be financial gain? Um, but if the court decides yes, the case moves forward, and then you you know you move on. Does the government have a compelling interest for creating? that substantial burden. Is it okay in this case to restrict religious liberty because they have a compelling interest to do so? And this was an argument that the Obama administration would make in the contraceptive cases that it defended, that they have a very strong interest in making sure that women have access to affordable birth control so that it should that should be weighed against the substantial burden. This is like the canonical thing here is like if I say like, oh, I'm in a human sacrifice cult. Yes. Right? And the government like, no. says, the government- you know, no, we, we have a substantial interest in you not sacrificing other humans. And then if you get past that hurdle, if you decide, you know, there is a substantial burden on sincere belief that the government does not have a very good reason to interfere, that, you know, this isn't something like cannibalism, the last thing goes to, is the government working in the least restrictive means? Are they doing kind of the bare minimum they need to to get to the compelling interest that has the least burden on a sincere belief? We didn't get through this process in Masterpiece Cake case. You know, we didn't even touch this. But I think the fact, you know, this comes up to the Supreme Court that you saw, you know, the Obamacare contraceptive mandate come up, and that really was a RIFRA case where they decided there was a substantial burden. The government did have a compelling interest, but they weren't pursuing that compelling interest with the least restrictive means, which is why you saw the contraceptive mandate get watered down a little bit in the Supreme Court. It really shows how kind of hard these cases are for courts to suss out. Like these are hard tensions. 
these are hard things. And they get into this like weird universe of both looking at the actual facts of the case, but also like trying to get inside people's heads of what they believe and like how we think about those beliefs and what counts as a substantial burden. It's a really tricky area of law, which I think makes these cases pretty unpredictable. I think one of the things that, you know, was kind of interesting in this decision to punt was how much the court was thinking about the context of the decision, you know, kind of the real world outside of all of this legal theory. So both you have like all these comments really dunking on the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. And then you also have this section that I thought was interesting from Kennedy, where, um, you know, he talks about there's actually a lot that's happened since its original kind of cake fight happened in 2012 in terms of the landscape of gay rights. Um, So one of the things I'm just going to read from a paragraph from the ruling here, where Kennedy writes that Philip's dilemma was particularly understandable given the background of legal principles and administration of of the law in Colorado at that time. His decisions and his actions leading to the refusal of service all occurred in the year 2012. At that point, Colorado did not recognize the validity of gay marriage performed in its own state. The court had not issued its decision in United States versus Windsor or Obergefell. This is part of the extreme narrowness is that Justice Kennedy is implying that potentially the exact same case would come out differently now because of his own prior. Right, exactly. This is is Justice Kennedy saying, I single-handedly changed America (laughs) with my Obergefell ruling. Like, it should not be understated here the extent to which this ruling is another in a long body of decisions from Justice Anthony Kennedy that legal scholars say raise as many questions as they do answers, but that are law and are regarded as like as often good law because they're coming from the swing justice on the Supreme Court. Like there were definitely a lot of questions that were raised about, okay, this does actually have implications for prior Supreme Court precedents that didn't really get addressed. Did Anthony Kennedy think about those? Did he not think about those? Did he just want to pat himself on the back for the last decision he wrote that raised these questions? Who knows? Yeah. So it's, uh, I, I thought that paragraph like really stood out to me. And it like almost implies, like you're saying, Matt, that like maybe this wouldn't even happen in 2018. Maybe there aren't cake bakers out there who refuse to make cakes for same-sex couples I mean, this is a field day for lawyers, right? Because, like, based on the narrowness of this, right, like, anybody on any side of this issue who, like, wants to have a fight has, like, some grist for the mill, right? Like, oftentimes, a Supreme Court ruling, for better or for worse, sort of closes a lot of doors to future litigation. This, like, only opens doors, right? Like, it's very hard to say, based on this case, how any future case would possibly turn out. I mean, I think that a lot of those doors already were open. Like, the point of referral laws isn't to settle questions. It's to say there is a space of competing claims that we, the legislature, are not equipped to adjudicate. We're setting out how the courts should approach these questions. You can bring your specific question to the courts. In most cases, that means that, like, religious claimants get denied. And, you know, that sometimes that's for things that might seem like pretty obvious or, you know, like the religious purpose is pretty attenuated. Often it's things like prison conditions and whether, you know, prisoners' religious rights are being respected, that where you fall politically on the spectrum is more likely to determine your position on some of these than a consistent belief for or against religious protection. But, like, it's not exactly that the Supreme Court opened doors that were previously closed, then that the court is 
kind of acknowledging that this is a really tricky space that the law hasn't figured out yet. And frankly, Kennedy's kind of crossing his fingers and hoping that opposition to same-sex marriage gets marginalized enough as a political opinion in short order so that they don't have to be resolving these questions with well, any broader thing. This is why, I mean, this is where I do think that like the punting here is is brilliant and well done because as long as this bakery thing has been going, it's just been an open question in my mind. It's like how big of a deal is this, right? Like there was there was legal scholarship in the 50s saying, oh, this whole like civil rights idea, like that sounds nice, but there's incredible tension here with the important First Amendment values of freedom of association. And like normal people rejected that argument because there was clearly – I mean, I don't know how to put this otherwise, but like segregation was a really big deal. It was like really systematic, really entrenched. It had huge impact on the everyday lives of millions and millions and millions of people. It was in point of fact not a matter of freedom of association but a matter of like daily enforcement by local law enforcement authorities. And, 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 and all kinds of violence. Like it was a huge deal. This cake thing, like I don't want to minimize it except just to say like we – Genuinely, I think, do not have enough experience to understand, like, what is the landscape that is going to be facing same-sex couples who are looking to get cakes and other wedding vending things. Like, it's just like, – like, if one bakery somewhere in America will not make cakes for same-sex weddings, that's not that big of a deal. If same-sex couples routinely find themselves facing all kinds of various forms of discrimination by vendors, that really is a big deal. And so like how hard of a line you want to take ultimately has something to do with how idiosyncratic this baker's preferences is. Like if, if – just like if one guy somewhere wants to be a jerk, like – it seems to me like let him be a jerk. Uh, but if people are facing like a huge systematic wall of discrimination, then there's like real reason to try to intervene forcefully and, and break that down. And it's just like we, we learn more with every passing day. Like is there going to be in the wake of the Supreme Court ruling, are we going to see like a lot of litigation about this or is it going to turn out? That there are very few instances where a couple wants a service from a vendor who doesn't want to provide it. And this is sort of like a rare issue. One of the things that's always stood out to me about gay marriage and gay rights is the incredibly fast shift in public opinion that's been happening like really just over the past, you know, seven or eight years. Like I'm looking right now at a chart from Gallup that shows in 1997 – 68% of Americans said that gay marriage should not be valid. 27% said that it should be valid. Those numbers have essentially flipped in the course of 20 years, which is really, really fast for social attitudes to change. And a lot of that change, kind of the moment when we flip to a, mo a majority of Americans supporting gay marriage is basically in 2012, this moment that this cake fiasco is beginning. And so I kind of have to imagine reading, you know, thinking of that paragraph from Justice Kennedy, that the, this is what is in the back of his mind as he's like writing this opinion is that we're in the middle of like a huge sea change that, that you don't see on other social issues. Like if you look at something like views on abortion, that you don't see this kind of shift. You don't see Americans becoming more liberal. If anything, they're becoming slightly more opposed to abortion rights. But you just see, and I'll put a link to this in show notes, for that 
a huge reversal of how Americans think about this issue over, you know, from 2011, 2012-ish on. And I mean, that's significant. And one of I think the other things that's notable about the data is we're not just talking about more liberal Democrats getting on board. You see it among Republicans, independents, Democrats. Basically, you just see all these lines going up of people supporting gay marriage. Now, that's not to say discrimination does not exist. You know, in the most recent Gallup data, you still had one third of Americans who did not think that gay marriage should be valid. So obviously, you know, there are people out there who disagree with this. But I think, you know, when I look at Kennedy's decision, it seems to be quite cognizant of these trends that are changing within the United States specific to this one issue and kind of like almost conveys a hope there will not be another case that comes before them because of this quick shift that we're seeing and how people think about this. So it's not that I disagree with any of this, but I'm a lot less sanguine about it kind of getting resolved by the force of, like, majority support. Because I think that, for one thing, the media and political landscape that we're currently in isn't actually going to give us a good sense of whether conflicts over this kind of thing are going to be rare or whether they're going to be widespread. There's going, you know, any individual conflict is going to get lifted up. It's almost inevitable that both religious conservatives and LGBT people are going to be consuming media that tells them that they are the victims and that the like state apparatus or the weight of business or whatever is conspiring to prevent them from living the, their lives as they see fit. That's not going to give LGBT people the sense that they, in point of fact, can go into a bakery anywhere and get a cake. Like Even if, in point of fact, they can do that, the amount of mental real estate that cake shops like Masterpiece are likely to take up in people's minds is probably going to be outsized. And like, it's really hard for me either to say, well, that's not a rational thing to be super concerned about, or that is something on which we should be making law. Like, it is a feeling of oppressiveness that is similar to a lot of other feelings of oppressiveness among various groups that like may or may not be adjudicable in point of fact. And even if they were, you're not going to tell people actually you're not oppressed. So I, I think the reason that this is relevant is that like in most cases, we don't talk about rights as something that are protected by the majority, right? Like, there's a reason that, like, the Constitution and the Bill of Rights lay things out absolutely because there are cases in which the majority is going to conspire to deprive people of their rights. So, like, the idea that the government shouldn't have to step in because society is going to do the work for them doesn't really speak to the idea that sexual orientation and gender identity need to be given the full protection of the state in the same way that like race is, that a state needs to send the absolute message that discrimination is not acceptable. That in theory, if you believe that fully, that doesn't accommodate even a single baker refusing to serve same-sex couples. Like even just a couple of cases would seem to give a state imprimatur to bigotry. And like, I think that in practice, this is a balancing test. Congress thinks in practice this is a balancing test. The Supreme Court thinks in practice it's a balancing test. A lot of people on both sides of the issue don't. They but, actually do think that fundamental rights are being implicated. But, but, but this is where it's important to get the, the majoritarian cart and, and horse sorted out correctly, right? Because the situation in Colorado and some other states, although to be clear, most states do not have anti-LGBT 
LGBT anti-discrimination laws at all. Mm -hmm. uh, but some states do. Colorado is one of them. So these are places where the majoritarian political process has said, we are going to secure the rights of our gay and lesbian citizens, right? And the litigating claim is that the majority in a state like Colorado is stampeding on the rights of the minority, which is the religious conscientious objectors. And one reason why this particular topic gets so fraught is because LGBT people perceive themselves as a vulnerable minority and they are cast in this litigation as the potentially oppressive majority. And if you think about it for a second, you can see why LGBT people conceive of themselves as the vulnerable minority because they are in fact a minority. But like legally speaking, what's happened in Colorado is that the, the majoritarian institutions are on their side. And then it also to progressive people feels odd to cast Christians as an oppressed minority, um, although that again like is legally what like what the issue is here is can the mighty forces of LGBT rights stamp on the oppressed minority of Orthodox Christians, right? And and this speaks to the original politics of RIFRA, right? Which this this arises out of a case in Oregon where there's an Oregon law that like you can't do peyote. Right. And there's an Indian tribe that uses peyote in religious ritual. There's an arrest made. I think I think there had previously been a sort of pragmatic accommodation of this, but somehow it did wind up in court, right? Native Americans say, okay, our First Amendment right to free practice of religion is being violated. And so this comes to the court. It presents as basically a classic civil rights case, right, in which a group of people that everybody would recognize is a vulnerable minority group, Native Americans, is just saying like the majority is stomping on us with their regular peyote law. And the Supreme Court smacks the Native Americans down, right, because they're doing a normal conservative reading of a civil rights case, which is that like unless the law is like super explicitly discriminatory, the mere fact that this general law is bad for Native Americans doesn't make it discrimination. So Native Americans lose, you know, great triumph for whatever, the rule of law. And then there's a backlash in which liberals are saying, no, 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 like we need to protect vulnerable minority groups. And, and what progressives have in mind is like Native Americans doing religious ceremonies, uh, Sikhs who would like to wear uh, their turbans, you know, when there's some rule about you can't have stuff on your head, right? Like the, because we take into granted that like majority groups, right, like Christmas Day is just a holiday, right? And I think we're all Jewish here. And it's like it's really inconvenient to like be with your family for Passover, Right. Because like the mainstream law just accommodates like what Christians need and then religious minority groups need to go for like special pleading uh, around different things. But Christian groups were smart and they hopped on this bandwagon and like lined up behind the idea of a legislative religious freedom restoration act, which, you know, I think was not like – an, a no-brainer call for them. But like they, they were smart and were like, no, like this is good. It's going to be good for adherents of the majority religion in America to enact this legislative protection for minority religions. And it passed overwhelmingly. It did. Like it was not a – I think I saw there were three senators who voted against 
against it. Right. Like it was it was not it is now often framed as like something that the, like a tool of the religious right, but I think you go back to 1997 it was actually it was, it was very, very bipartisan, bipartisan because it originally presented as liberals wanted to protect religious minorities and then organized Christian groups were like, "Yes, we should help protect religious minorities." And what's now we frequently see in these birth control and in these baking cases is Christians who conceive themselves to be an oppressed minority, but like left-wing people do not often see them that way. And I think that's why these cases become so fraught, right? Particularly the the LGBT discrimination because the people on both sides see themselves as the ones who anti-discrimination law is supposed to be helping. The one thing that's also notable here to me in this case, kind of going against this, you know, argument that Kennedy seems to be making that, oh, well, things are shifting. We still don't have a national law against discrimination against LGBTQ people. Like Matt was saying, we have a minority of states who have passed these laws. I think it's 21 states, um, largely blue states as kind of the map you'd expect. But I think, you know, you can look at the Gallup polling I was talking about earlier, but there are also things that are indicative of not being this massive shift. Like I know Kennedy's writing about these decisions he's made and how we're in this middle of a sea change. That is something, you know, Congress could do. I haven't heard anyone bring that up. It doesn't seem to be an agenda item in any sort of sort of way. But that is something that like is on the table in their power that could, you know, come out of just like we saw RIFRA come out of the peyote case from Oregon, you could see something similar, but I think it is notable suggesting that the landscape might not be quite what Kennedy is describing it as, that in most states, you, you wouldn't even have a Colorado commission on um, on civil liberties because you would not have a law like the one that they have. Well, this gets to the weird majoritarianism or like counter-majoritarianism of living, of American life right now generally, because if you're an LGBT person living in most states in the union, you can legitimately look at your government and say there is no indication that the government thinks that I am a member of a vulnerable minority who needs to be protected by the state. But if you're in, you know, the state of Colorado and you're a conservative Christian, you're looking at your state government and going, I have no indication that the state thinks that I am a vulnerable minority who needs to be protected by the state. So, like, this is partly a function of federalism. It's partly a function of kind of the nationalization of politics generally, where I think that things that are happening in deep red states to people matter a lot more emotionally to media consumers in blue states than objectively the impact on their lives is going to be and vice versa. There's a certain use of the kind of fact that different people in America have different kinds of lives structured by different kinds of governments to perpetuate a sense that actually, no, you are the besieged minority in American life and the other side holds all of the levers of power and is trying to crush you. Yes. Time for it's time to celebrate Sweden Day. Let's take a break. Let's talk about Sweden. Do you pay attention to stuff? Like, not just to this podcast, but to everything. Uh, You know, I read magazines like New Yorker, Time, uh, you know, even Entertainment Weekly to round out my world. And and you can get every magazine that matters with Texture. So what is it? It's a great question. Texture is the magazine app. They have more than 200 of the best magazines all in one place. Uh, You get complete issues, you get back issues anytime, anywhere, all in one app. So you stay connected to the biggest and best stories with Texture. So it's an app. It's on your smartphone. It's on your 
your tablet. It's especially great on the tablet. You, you get a great deal with texture. It's a really fun way to dive in and, and sort of engage. So here's the basics of what you need to know. If you want to start your seven-day free trial, you go to texture.com slash weeds. So why wait to start reading the latest issues of your favorite magazine? Try Texture for free today at texture.com slash weeds. That's texture.com slash weeds and start your free trial. Hey, Weeds listeners, this is Todd Vanderwerf, host of Vox.com's culture podcast, I Think You're Interesting. FX's The Americans just aired its last episode. It was one of my favorite shows. Maybe it was one of your favorite shows, but either way, I think you should check out my conversation with the show's co-star Matthew Rees and showrunners Joe Weisberg and Joel Fields. I think you'll really enjoy it. Listen and subscribe to I Think You're Interesting wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so we got some Swedish lottery winners today. It's pretty sweet. Okay, so this is a a paper. It's brought to us by uh, Eric Linkvist, Robert Ersling, I think. (laughs) I'm trying to pronounce Swedish names. And David Cesarini, uh, nice American, thank God. Um, And so they, they looked at what happens to Swedish people when they win the lottery. And they survey them about their psychological well-being. Uh, and it turns out that people who win the lottery are doing better than people who have not won the lottery. Uh, but there's an interesting divergence, right? So when they do what they call evaluative measures of well-being, which is like they ask you um, – you know, like how how's your life going? How satisfied are you with your life? Lottery winners are really good at like saying life satisfaction is high. Uh, but then when they look at happiness and mental health, there's only a very slight improvement. Uh, so this is a, a divide between the effective well-being, which is like how happy you are, and your evaluative well-being, which is how satisfied you say you are with how your your life is going. Uh, we find this this kind of divergence between evaluative and, and effective measures in in a range of contexts. So I I thought it was a little interesting that it would come up in in this one. So it's like money. I mean, like, can money make you happy is like a perennial subject. And the answer here is sort of. Well, and I think also one thing that's interesting about this is they're looking at the long-term well-being of lottery winners. So one of the things they're doing here is just exploring this idea that um I think like a popular conception that lottery winners like blow all their money in the first few years and then like somehow like ruin their lives, which is maybe what we all tell ourselves because oh, we yeah, are not like, like us suckers like, would, we would like be to believe re- yes. that lottery winners are just like they waste their money and it's fine. And but no, like, no, it turns they're out they're definitely richer. They're definitely richer. This study looks at people's well-being five years after they've won the lottery. So presumably they've had some time to like buy some boats or like do something dumb with their with their winnings. And they do find that these people are evaluatively at least doing better than the rest of us, that they've had this increase in evaluative well-being, which I guess makes sense. Like, I, I mean, like, I don't know. I guess it, it wouldn't, it's not the most shocking, groundbreaking finding that more money gives you more flexibility. Like, you, it seems like, you know, when Matt and I were talking about this before outside of the studio, that what's going on here is, like, when you have more money, you feel more secure. There are thing, less things to worry about. You have some kind of safety net, This study suggests you didn't blow that money in the first five years. But do you feel like better about your life? Do you feel like you're like doing something like positive and like exciting? That's the part that winning the lottery doesn't seem to change very much. But I I feel like that explanation, 
I would expect to see it go the other direction, right? I would expect to see less of a divergence in how happy people said they were with their lives and more of a divergence in like happiness and mental health. I think what instead you're seeing here is that like in kind of the day-to-day stuff, people who win the lottery, they still sweat the small stuff. Winning the lottery does not in fact mean that you like float through your life on a Zen master cloud. But when asked to step back and like think critically about where they are, there's something that switches on that says, actually, even though I've been getting sucked up in all of this stuff, actually, I think my life is pretty good. It almost looks like a superego check, right? Like people who have gotten this windfall, who have like whose lives have been changed by the fact that a bunch of money fell into their laps through something they can't portray as like they're just karmic desserts makes them think, oh, well, I know I have it well compared to other people. So when asked directly, I know I ought to say that my life is going pretty well. Well, this really it's interesting because the classic case for an effective evaluative split is having children, right? Where parents of of young kids, uh, such as myself, are in practice unhappy uh, because you know. We don't get sleep. Uh, we, we never do anything fun. We have no money. It's terrible. <laughs> um, but then, like, if you ask, it's like, oh, how are you doing? It's like we have much higher life satisfaction than childless people because we're embarked on a noble human adventure and doing something worthwhile with our lives. And, you know, it's it's all for – has a meaning. And, and you know, it, it, it's it, – I'm joking, but it, like it's true, right? It's like raising a child shapes your your life and makes you feel like you are engaged in something worthwhile and significant. Winning the lottery, it like it feels to me like it should be like the opposite of having a child, right? That like it's just awesome that like you have all this money, so like you can go do something cool and just like be happy all the time. But then if you step back and think, you're like, well, I haven't like achieved anything, right? Like I I didn't earned this. I didn't do anything worthwhile. I like just drank some fancy wine yesterday because I happened to be rich. But it's the opposite, right? It's like in a weird day-to-day way, it doesn't make you happier. But then when you ask people like, how's it going? They say better. To me, that casts into an interesting light the psychology of like normal rich people who aren't lottery winners. Mm -hmm. Like if even people who clearly got rich through dumb luck and have no grounds whatsoever to fool themselves into thinking it was anything other than dumb luck can get this sense of like smug self-satisfaction from it. Like, God help people. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if it's smug self-satisfaction, though. I feel like it's equally plausible that it's humility, that it's like, you know what? I don't actually have a whole lot to complain about. Like, I complain that my, you know, rare cheetah just like tore up my Persian rug. But in the grand scheme of things, what it's like to be super rich. Everybody knows that I would spend all of my money on exotic pets. (laughs) But uh, that's kind of the way that it makes sense to me that it's the same dynamic that you see with parents. It's like the story that people tell themselves about where they are in relation to other people. Parents tell themselves, "Okay, I am actually, you know, more noble than other people because I am engaged in this great adventure. But it still serves the same function of. When I think about where I am in my life, I'm doing pretty okay. With lottery winners, it's the way I've been thinking of it is, I guess I shouldn't complain that much. I had all these problems before I won the lottery, uh, but like there are certain ways in which life is easier now. I know there are people who don't have all the money that I have and who still have these problems. Like in relation to other people, things are going pretty okay. So I think one of the things that maybe is a little bit surprising to me here is you don't see as much of like a transfer 
from the evaluative well-being to effective. So you could think of like one narrative of lottery winners where all of a sudden you like have this windfall of money. And maybe this is less true in Sweden because they have a much more robust social safety net than we do. But you could be like, oh, I have like the money to have another kid. Like I have the money to pursue things that are actually important to me, that these things have been holding me back in some way because I don't have enough money to do the thing I want to do. And now I can. And like I am able to do those sorts of things. So it kind of I mean, it comes back to this idea we have about lottery winners that like maybe is just, um, again, like comforting me as a non-lottery winner that maybe, you know, sure, they're not like blowing their money in like five years and like they feel better on the evaluative side, but like they're not actually using the money to buy things. We we know there are things that do affect effective well-being and it doesn't seem like they're using their money to buy those things. I think maybe that's like an open question of this paper is like, could you use this money to buy those things? Like, Wait, what? What should we be buying? Well, yeah, like you're is- saying, <laughs> you're like, um, like a kid, basically, <laughs> not like a kid, but like having another kid because you feel like you have this cushion, and like you said, like we have all this research showing that raising children, you know, is go- it increases that kind of well-being. So that's one example that comes to mind. Or like, I don't know, like supporting a nonprofit that it feels like gives you a feeling like, oh, I'm doing something super worthwhile with my life, and I don't know if it's like. That just wouldn't work. Yeah, but that's just more evaluative that. well-being. Right. The I question think, is, how do I get my effective well-being? Like how? I think the other. How piece, can I just be high on life all the time with my lottery <laughs> winnings? Because Dara's cheetahs evidently don't work. <laughs> the other point here, and like this is almost certainly less of a thing in the Swedish context for various reasons, but you know, so much of the conversation about wealth and income in the United States is structured by the fact that being less, having less wealth means you're also surrounded by people who have less Mm -hmm. wealth. And therefore, if you come into a certain amount of money, everybody around you who is not doing well, who has a relationship with you, is going to, you know, is going to try to make some claim on your ability to help them out. And I think this is like a substantially under-discussed cause of a lot of the racial wealth gap stuff we talk about, because like, If you have family obligations to other people and they don't have the same income that you have, you know, because you were able to find a good job and they weren't like that actually is a really fraught question of what you as an individual should do with that money. And I can see something similar happening in cases of lottery winners where like everybody, you know, is going to know you won the lottery. You're probably not going to keep that a very good secret. And so people you know and have relationships with who feel able to make claims on your time now may feel able to make claims on or at least like appeals to your money in ways that might actually complicate the existing life that you have and turn things that should be sources of affective well-being, like friendships, like a strong family network, into causes of service. Dark. It's dark there. So we can convince ourselves that winning the lottery, actually not that great. Uh, I'd still take it. <laughs> I, want, I, want, I want the lottery. I want the lottery. Um, okay, with that, um, you know, we don't have any advice on how to win the lottery, but you can unquestionably increase your effective uh, and evaluative well-being by joining the Weeds Facebook group, uh, continuing the conversation there, checking out our many other fine Fox Media Podcast Network podcasts. Uh, also checking out our new Netflix show, which is super good and gets into this like racial wealth gap issue that you mentioned. Yes, so indeed. Yes. For that. There is an episode on that, uh, which is amazing. Monogamy, amazing. K-pop, it's like double amazing. Gene CRISPR. 
really cool, weird. My episode's my coming out soon, so Ooh. stay tuned. Yeah, the new episodes are out every Wednesday, and it's amazing. It's called Explained. It's on Netflix. You guys probably know where Netflix is. Um, so, okay, with that, uh, it's, uh, thanks to uh, our, our engineer, Griffin Tanner, our producer, Bridget Armstrong, to our sponsors, of course. Uh, and we will be back, hopefully still with Sarah, or maybe she doesn't feel that way. Uh, Sarah clearly does not feel that way. <laughs> on Friday. It's going to be amazing. Hopefully this is my last tweets for a while. We See hope, you guys we in the fall. We hope Sarah will be with us on Friday. <laughs> Bye.